everyone and welcome to Marie Claire's Start Somewhere podcast. I'm Sarah Vaughan and today I've got the great delight of um, talking to one of my dear friends, Mikkel, who is the founder of Under One Sky and he's going to tell us a little bit more about that uh, later. Um, but first, welcome Mikkel. How are you today? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Good to, uh, good to be with you on a Sunday, Sarah. I know. Fantastic. Yeah. And it's Father's Day as well. So happy Father's Day. Thank you. <laughs> and Miguel, tell me, um, how did you get started in life? You know, what, what's your life journey been? Okay, so my, uh, I'm Danish um, and I now live for, uh, in the UK for about, about 20 years. But <clears throat> I grew up in a very small rural community in Denmark. Uh, it was all, actually, actually only when I I got to the UK that I realized the real term for it was a hamlet <laughs> because there were only about 30 people. Oh, wow. Really small. Yeah. <laughs> Ex- extremely small. Um, and so I guess what that gave me in the early years was, was a lot of freedom because um, it was quite rare that a car would even pass by. <laughs> and um, so, so, you know, I spent a lot of time in nature. Nature was really the playground. I spent a lot of time on my own, you know, playing football with myself and uh, playing tennis against the wall and so on. <laughs> and I guess what that, uh, I guess what that gave me was uh, a lot of time to think. Maybe not sort of thinking uh, consciously about things, but definitely there was definitely the mind space for your, for, for your mind to just work on things. And um, one of the things that was very clear to me from the beginning was that I was not going to I was not going to stay there. I mean, I knew I needed to get in get into the the big wide world, whatever whatever that meant. Uh, and I guess often, sort of the, the the picture I had in my head was like when you when you read fairy tales and you see this little figure, whether a person or an animal, just walking into the world. Um, so. Um, yeah, so that's that's where my life started, and I was actually there for 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 a good probably eighteen years. Um, there was, of course, like you know, villages around and so on. But when you're three, four, or five, you just you don't just go there. Um, and then, yeah, did, did my degree uh, in, in Denmark, and then came to London to do a, a master's degree in uh, in accounting and finance at, at London School of Economics and then uh, that's kind of where my work life started uh, here in London. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what did you subsequently start doing in London? So I had I had the the perfect start to my career in in, in hindsight because uh, the first job I got was uh, with a was in equity research working for a startup company and 12 months later the, the dot com bubble burst and uh, the VC pulled out the funding and the company was dead. Wow. So I had to very quickly um, find another job. Uh, and then I entered the world of commodities trading. Um, and after about 12 months, Enron folded and the, the, the energy trading markets were killed. And so I was redundant again. Wow. So yeah, while the rest of my colleagues were, were doing super well in investment banks and so on, so clearly not the best start, uh, at least I thought at that point. Um, the other thing that is worth mentioning in the context of this was at the same time, I'd actually, I'd, I'd injured my back really badly. 
So I had a slip disc and for a couple of years, I, um, I really had to roll out of bed every morning and kind of teach myself to walk again. Oh my goodness. Uh, it, it, so I was in a lot of pain. And um, so there was, of course, that pain going on. And there was the fact that actually the career that I thought I was going to have looked like it was not even going to, it hadn't even started yet. But um, what that did for me was, um, I guess it, it gave me the opportunity to, to sort of having to look elsewhere. And I was quite lucky in the sense that um, my wife, my now wife was working in the shop and one day a customer came in and they got talking and she invited him for dinner. And this guy talked then at the dinner, talked to us about meditation, but he was also had always, had always worked in the film industry. And actually at that moment, I realized when I started looking at it, actually I'd, I'd like to, to work in film. Um, and so with that, I convinced the company that was making me redundant uh, that they should pay for me to go to film school. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> in, instead, in, instead of helping me find another job in, in London. Yeah. And, and so they did that. Uh, but the other things that ha happened around that time was with regards to my illness, I actually managed to cure myself purely through mind um, by learning about, about sort of mind-body medicine. And the meditation had also just started opening up a completely different kind of side of my life. So it was, a, it was really a, sort of the, the defining moment for me. Um, that time, it was around 2003. So that's, that's how my career started and ended. And, and a new one started in a, in, a, in a very short time. So in a sense, it was sort of meditation helped you find your, find, find your purpose. What kind of meditation were you doing? Uh, at the at, at the time, it was something called Sahaj Yoga, um, and um, sort of you know chakra cleansing and balancing and so on. Um, but actually, what what I've found with life, at least for myself, is that you can find meditation in anything. Mm. It's it's probably not so much about the technique. The technique is just the key, and you need to find the key that fits the keyhole that you're trying to. To, uh, to, to open at that, that point in time. But yes, meditation is definitely, was definitely a, I, I would say, the moment because what happened shortly after I started meditating, uh, basically what happened was, uh, it was, was kind of like a voice came to me that said, your passion is people. Mm. Um, and that's actually where the journey of, of where I am today started. Um, and with that, what happened sort of, uh, you know, I did meditation for some years. And then actually what started happening was that people were put in my path that in some way, uh, in some way, shape or form needed my assistance. Mm. Um, and so I started working with those people just, you know, just as a friend, not trying to impose any technique or anything, but simply just, you know, being a person and, and, given the advice that you can give from your, from your own learnings. Um, and with hindsight, I can, I, I can see that those were kind of obviously real people that I needed to, to work with, but they were also some kind of training mm -hmm. to keep, you know, elevating the, the skills in that field, if, if, if you want. Um, and so I did that while I was, you know, I, I moved into film, I worked for Universal Studios, in, on the business side in their international business. 
uh, but I'd also started getting more getting more and more interest in um, social change, social impact, and and so started looking at potential film projects uh, revolving around, for example, the the good and bad of globalization uh, and these sorts of things. And um, it was actually through that journey then that eventually. Uh, Under One Sky that you mentioned, which is a is a nonprofit organization supporting the homeless, started because um, I set up a film production company with a friend, and film scripts take a long time to develop. And uh, I said to him, "Should we, should we just go out and 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 have a chat with some homeless people this Christmas and and hand out some Christmas gifts?" Mm-hmm. And he agreed with that, and that was back in 2012. Um, I put on Facebook whether anyone wanted to join us and six other people came out and some people gave us money to, to buy stuff with, though we hadn't asked. And uh, yeah, that was the beginning of Under One Sky, which uh, then after the event, we reported on social media and so on and said thank you to our donors. And uh, a lot of people then approached me and said, you have to do this again because I want to do it too. Um, and that's really how that, that ball got rolling. Um, and so, yeah, we then, over the years, grew from those eight people to about 600 volunteers uh, by Christmas time this year. Mm. And um, yeah, at the moment, we're, we're in the middle of a big COVID food, food emer- emergency initiative. And that's kind of been another a leap up, another, another chapter for us um, where, yeah, it's we've had complete growth within a couple of months. Amazing. And, and I mean, I, I think I saw something, let's talk about what, what you you know, what's happened during this time of, 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 of COVID. I mean, you know, obviously, you, you know, I, I recall seeing a, a Facebook post from you, you know, saying that you'd gone out um, onto the street just to do a bit of a recce and, and you'd found people who hadn't kind of eaten and drunk you know, for a couple of days who were really in, in desperation. So, yeah, tell us a little bit more ab- about that. Yeah, so exactly. We we went out. It was it was two days after lockdown. We met one person who hadn't eaten for six days. Mm-hmm. Saw the other stories like that. And, and actually what we, you know, what we just saw was the fact that, of course, here you have a contingent of the population who are completely reliant on other people passing by. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, charities who show up to hand out food. Or people handing handing uh, you know a, a few uh, few pound coins, and of course all that was left, all that was gone. So it was a bit like people being in solitary confinement, but outside because they had nowhere to go. And so and and, and, and yeah, and and Mikhail, I mean they didn't, I mean they didn't have anywhere to wash either, did they? They didn't have you know, all the public toilets were closed. You know, I mean, let's, you know, it would be really great to actually describe what, you know, a bit, a bit more detail, what central London was like at that time. I mean, there's questions. I mean, the central, central London basin completely empty apart from homeless people. So no, uh, no, no one handing out food at that early stage. As you say, no toilets or very few public toilets open. No places to shower. No places to charge your mobile phone. Uh, you know, er- everything closed. Also, if you want to, you know, go go to a job center or another sort of public office, obviously everything shut down. So 
yeah, I mean, these people were just left to their own devices. And we went out and we said, okay, we need to do something. And then luckily you actually brought us together with a, a charity called Glassdoor and a, a social enterprise called Stories for Change. And that's where we agreed, okay, the, the imminent need out there is food. And that is something that we can actually execute. Um, and, and so that's, that's how it happened. And of course, in the midst of all this, the government came out and said, we're going to put all the homeless in hotels. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people who, who, who didn't go into hotels and um, they have really, they were really completely abandoned. And so that, those are the people that, that we've been looking after over the last, now as we speak today, this is our day 81 um, of this initiative where we've been out every day. Uh, and actually just yesterday we, we crossed having sort of served 25,000 meals. Um, so it's been it's it's been quite a ride uh, for everyone involved. Yeah, and and I mean I have to say that it's been incredibly heartwarming. I mean, how many volunteers do you have now? So we so what basically what happened was we we were quite lucky that um, Amelia Gentleman from the Guardian came out and, and did a walk with us uh, and put an article in, in the paper. And as soon as that article came out, everything exploded. So two days, we had 500 new people who wanted to volunteer. We had already gotten 200 people within that initiative. So uh, we actually ended up in a situation where we had to say to people, you can be on our mailing list, but we don't have any opportunities at the moment. Because for this initiative, currently we have about 850 uh, people on the mailing list. Um, so yeah, it's just, it, it, it really went mad. And, and after that, all the media really wanted to come out and walk with us, whether it was the BBC or channel four ITV. Um, so it was, so suddenly everything got very busy, not just, you know, serving the people on, on the streets, but also actually managing this whole thing. I, I kind of, the way I see it is, a, it's a bit like, uh, a startup on speed, <laughs> because when we started this initiative, we didn't even have a website. Right. Yeah. And people so, uh, were making sandwiches in, 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 in their homes, weren't they? Yeah. I mean, we just, we struggled in the beginning just to, yeah, just how, how do we actually get food out? Um, so yeah, it's been, <laughs> it's been a huge change. And also I think, I mean, you know, as you said, you know, most people had read the headlines which said that the homeless had been taken into into hotels. So they didn't think it was an issue, did they, until that Guardian piece came out? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's such a good point, because when we started posting about uh, the situation, a lot of the comments that came back was, oh, I thought everyone was in hotels. And clearly they weren't. I mean, we, at the moment, and that's been quite consistent during the you know, during this initiative, we're serving between 350 and 500 meals a day. Mm-hmm. And, and we're by, by no means the only ones out there. And we're only doing the very core part of central London. Mm-hmm. So it gives you a pretty good steer on, you know, how many people are still left on the streets. And, and I think, as you mentioned before, the, they've just, they were just left with nothing. I really think it's uh, actually, to be honest with you, a human rights issue. Mm-hmm. Access to water, access to sanitation is, uh, is is part of our human rights. And I really can't, um, it's hard for me to, 
understand why um, anyone could let this happen. Sorry. No, don't worry. Just, just, just finish that bit. It's hard for me to understand how anyone could let that happen. I might have to start on the music. <laughs> so it's really hard for me to understand how anyone could, could let that, that situation happen because how can you leave a person with nothing? And the, the hotbed of, of where a lot of the homeless people have been congregating is Trafalgar Square. And it's literally a two-minute walk from Downing Street. Yes. That, uh, that, that I find very, very difficult to swallow. Yeah, and it, it does seem strange, you know, not least because I think we've seen some examples internationally of cities really leaning in, you know, and really helping their homeless populations, you know, and, 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 and you know, creating housing for them and facilities for them during this time. So I think it has been all the more surprising that this has happened in, in, in London, yes. Mm. Yeah, I, I get the sense that uh, in, in, in many of the other UK cities has actually been putting people into hotels has, has probably been more of a, a comprehensive success. Mm. Of course, the people who are in hotels, great for them, but we, we everyone's an individual. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think, you know, just, just looking forward, you know, I, I mean, where, where's, where's Under One Sky going to go next, Mikkel? We have a we have a number of, of different ideas. I think one of the key things to um, mention here about our organization is that no one actually works for under one sky. Every volunteer and and so what we've been doing over the last 80 days has meant that people have had to put their other business activities on hold. Mm-hmm. So you know it's been it's been quite quite a, a straining time for everyone to, to make this work. And so one of the, we have to look at in the future, um, do, we, do we restructure to, to make something more permanent of it? Uh, I know that we, we would like to, one of the things that we'd like to do actually, we would like to establish ourselves as an outreach organization that could work with the established charities that have housing and so on, because um, what we have is strength in numbers. So mm-hmm. I'll say uh, the, the organizations that are dependent on government money or council money to run, um, they, they've, they've had to shrink. But uh, what we have is uh, more than a thousand people who are extremely passionate and engaged about this and who have basically done an 80-day boot camp on the streets right now, um, talking to people, understanding what their problems are, et cetera, et cetera. So what we would like to offer ourselves up as to say, we can be out there and we can actually meet these people and we can refer them uh, to, the, to the right, uh, you know, to the right uh, organizations, depending on the profile of the, the, the person we meet. Um, that's definitely a direction we would like to move into to become much more of a permanent force of social good and social change. Yeah. Our overall ambition, and of course, that's some, not something we can do on our own, is to eradicate homelessness. Because in a, um, in a society like ours and, in, and most societies that have a decent level of wealth, this really should not be happening. And um, I've, I've always sort of said, 
how can you how can you call yourself a developed society if if you can live with people being on the streets? We need to have a different definition of what developed means. And of course, we're seeing that permeate throughout the world right now in terms of business and ethics and everything else. So this is just one part of that much bigger wave. Um, so we're looking at different things. Uh, short term, we're also looking at doing some music and entertainment events for the homeless to actually not just give them socks and food, but also something to make them feel normal in that sense and to kind of uh, living up the spirit. Um, we're also looking at an app idea actually to uh, to, to, uh, to make what Under One Sky do on the, on the street walks something that could be accessible on a daily basis rather than uh, as organized events. Yeah, and and I think it'd be really great, you know, to explain to to our listeners a little bit about what does make it special because you've touched on it before. But this isn't just kind of showing up and going, you know, here's your food, bye. <laughs> you know, this really, you know, is 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 an extraordinary like heart connection going on between you know the the volunteers and 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 the guests, isn't it? And and it and it's a real exchange. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. It, and and this is this is really what Under One Sky was founded on. It was founded on the uh, the principle of connection. Mm-hmm. It wasn't founded on the principle of going out and handing out food and socks. We do that because it's convenient as we meet people anyway. But the whole basis of what we do is around connection, and it's about giving people dignity. It's about allowing people to tell their story, and it's also about sharing that specific moment and um that's also what you know the feedback that we get from the our homeless friends as we call them on the streets is that actually a connection is being built and i think the way i see it is one of our mantras is for better for better tomorrow you need to survive today mm. And one part of that survival, of course, is food and so on. But for me, it's really about keeping the spirit alive, like making sure that 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 candle that burns inside every one of us, that the flame is not blown out. Because I think when that happens, you're you're gone. You know, when you lose the hope. And so, what we're out there to do is really to almost stand around that person to make sure that the flame can you know, burn brighter and, and give people a sense of, of hope. And, and we also, you know, we're very pragmatic. So during this crisis, for example, we've had situations where someone is stuck in London or trapped here and they say, well, actually, I have family in Wales or Leeds or whatever. And then what we do is we make sure that, you know, that that, that story holds and there are people who can take care of them in, in, in that destination. And then we go take them to the train station, buy them a train ticket and get them on the train. Mm. So it's, it's, it, it's not that hard. Um, and so that's the other thing about, you know, I think what makes us special in a way is because we have those conversations, we understand what the needs are. And when we understand what the needs are, it's much easier to find the right solution. And the right solution might not always be another pair of, of socks. Right. So. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's beautiful. So we're coming to the end of um, 
our time together very sadly we could talk for a lot longer so you know we always finish off um with kind of inviting you to say what's your what's your top tip you know for those who are listening who want to start somewhere how how, how can they help how, how can they help create change in this area I, I think, and this is one of the, if we, if we had two hours to speak, I probably would talk about that because one of the key defining moments in, I think, in my own life in terms of shifting gears is actually working to reduce the ego. And I, I, and I think my top tip would basically be to make sure that some self-work starts to become the master of our own egos. Mm-hmm. It, I think our own ego stops us from doing things. And it's, it's kind of the doorman that stops the true magnificence of, of what we have to offer this world this time around. Uh, it's actually stopping that coming out because of fear of looking stupid or failing or whatever. And when we understand that um, we're actually here to make a difference and we're here for others and we can only make a difference if we work with others, then it doesn't, our lives stop being so self-centered and it becomes much more about measuring the impact and saying, well, okay, maybe I didn't, maybe I didn't deliver hundred percent, but I, I delivered 70%, which is much better than delivering zero. Mm. So um, it's really, yeah, taking that, that ego out of the way so that we can jump in the, in the pool that is life and, you know, uh, create and live and enjoy and, and so on. And, that's, I think, you know, often people seek enlightenment, awakening, this, that, the other. I think the, the easiest way of doing that is actually to just start working on your ego. Because if the ego is too big, nothing else can come in. You reduce your ego, you create, you create room for some, something else. So I think that would, that would probably be my, my, uh, my top tip in, in terms of people who... Uh, are standing knowing that there's something else they, sh- they, they want to step into, but they, they don't know what it is. Well, the first thing in that is to say, take a leap of faith. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Mikkel. That was absolutely beautiful and what an extraordinary invitation. And I just, <clears throat> you know, really want to recognize you for the extraordinary work you have done. And thank you and all the volunteers the sponsors and you know our friends you know um through through this period and and thank you i mean you know you and your volunteers have i think saved many lives during this time and it's such a beautiful thing you've done so thank you on, on behalf of you know all of us for, for <laughs> what you've been doing thank you so thank much thank you take care and have a lovely father's day with your family um thank you so much Mikel, and um, i look forward to catching up with you soon bless you same here pleasure take care yeah?